My house, we have a saying, uh, when we don't want to do something, we say, I would, all except for one reason. And that is, I don't want to. Right? <laughs> I don't want to. I would, all except for one reason. I hear that a lot in my house. Um, usually, whatever's come up that I don't want to do, I could probably come up with some reasons for it, but I have happen to usually know viscerally before I even really think it through if it's something I want to do or not. So um, some of the young people at church have been wanting me to watch an anime movie with them. It's called uh, Princess Mononoke. And I would, all except for one reason. <laughs> Actually, I will, because um, Rebecca Taylor is more persistent than I am stubborn. So, but I'm not looking forward to it. Um, so, sorry. I have a resistance that's just natural there that sort of is prior to my reasons for not wanting to do something. Right? But there's, um, it's almost like an instinct level. Uh, or uh, maybe a filter in my brain that, that sorts things out, says no to them before I, you know, have to stop and think about every little thing in life. Some things I just know without having to think about it very much. I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. Which is the way it seems to me that a lot of my friends think about uh, religious faith or faith in Jesus in particular. Um, without really jumping into all the reasons, it's sort of a response of, "Yeah, I would, all except for one reason." I don't, I've already sort of decided without even thinking it through all that much by things that are just sort of reasons that are in the background noise of my life that this isn't plausible and uh, most likely can't be true and probably isn't really worth my spending a lot of time digging into it and thinking about it, right? These are kind of uh, like background um, beliefs almost that are, that are just givens in your mind. You don't have to stop and think about it very much at all. You know, you might say, yeah, I, something about what I've experienced or known or heard about Christian faith makes it feel implausible to me. If you really pin me down, I might try to come up with some reasons to justify that, uh, some objections of things I may have heard about the faith or things that might seem implausible about it to me uh, specifically. But really... I decided before I started into the reasons that uh, it was a no thank you kind of an issue. Uh, and faith is funny that way because um, faith is more than reason. Right? It's not just the most reasonable people wind up putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not less than reason. You, know, you, you do have to think about it, but faith somehow is more than reason. And the way people come at faith is odd. It's odd for people who aren't yet Christians. It's odd for people who are already Christians. And it's very odd for people who get wrapped up in trying to persuade their friends about the truth of Christianity. Um, and so I want us to look in this passage in Mark 6, which is in your bulletin of where we'll be uh, bringing the teaching from today, um, at several examples of faith and why it's difficult. And then uh, the Poor half of his disciples that sent out get sent out to try to drum it up in other people, uh, which is kind of the predicament that we're in too. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we believe that, uh, in as much as we have faith, it's a gift from you, 
Um, we also know the means that you use and the reasons that you've given us and the credibility that you've established in our minds uh, for Jesus and his truth. And we ask that as we listen to his teaching today that you would deepen our faith, give us faith where we don't have it, uh, overcome obstacles and barriers that uh, we bring in with us, whether we want to or not. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of a long passage, three different sections, but they all kind of revolve around the same thing. But first, uh, verse 1 in Mark 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they won't listen to you, when you leave, Shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others, no, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to you, O Christ. Let's jump right in. Two points. Uh, One is uh, resistance we feel to having faith in Jesus Christ. And then second is the resistance we feel in sharing our faith in Jesus Christ. First, the resistance we feel about having faith. You've got two examples in this passage of people who uh, came in contact with Jesus but who rejected Him. Right? And they resist Him for similar and different reasons, but uh, they both weren't willing to hear Him. The first was His hometown uh, synagogue family, right, where He'd grown up. He went back and preached there. It's the first time in His public ministry, apparently, that He'd been back there. And uh, they couldn't handle it. Um, maybe it's familiarity uh, that made them feel contemptuous. I don't know why familiarity would make us feel contemptuous. I know it often does. Um, but their approach wasn't, hey, let's listen impartially and be as open-minded as we can and evaluate the evidence for his claims and see what we conclude. That wasn't their approach. Their approach was, who's he think he is? <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't a reasoned objection to him. It was more like, well, we've been knowing him, so how could he be something more than what we've known him to be? I mean, maybe if he grew up to be a rabbi, that'd be one thing, but he's claiming to be the Messiah. And uh, there's just no way. Right? This sort of the background beliefs kick in. You say, no, that can't be. There's no way that he could be that. Um, somehow it was just socially unthinkable for them. It was not a category they were willing to entertain. And then they kind of started to backload some reasons in behind this assumption that they have that can't be true. And they sort of are pejorative. They say, isn't this... Mary's son, instead of Joseph's son, which is, would have been the more likely thing they would have said. But to say Mary's son is to cast aspersions on Mary and the circumstances of Jesus' birth, which people still do today, um, and say, yeah, yeah, remember all that about Mary and the Immaculate Conception? Um, yeah, it's him. So he can't be. He can't be the Messiah. They had social reasons Somehow that it didn't make sense that he could be the Messiah. So they, they ruled it out categorically without really thinking about it. Um, then Herod, who believes a lot, too. It's not like he's a hard-bitten empiricist or something. You know, he believes that John the Baptist is a righteous and holy man and a prophet from God. Right? He believes in the miracles that are happening. He doesn't try to discount miracles that are going on. He He's just trying to account for them. He certainly believes they're happening. Um, and he's kind of a superstitious person. Like he's, His guilt seems to be getting at him. I know what's going on. It's, I killed John the Baptist and now he's coming back to haunt me. You know, And that's what it feels like to him and what he thinks is going on. And uh, he knows that his marriage is immoral. Like He married his, half, his half-brother's wife, which means that he had to get a divorce and she had to get a divorce. Uh, neither of which was okay with Jewish law. And even the Romans were felt like it was creepy what he was doing. The emperor Caligula deposed uh, um, Herod from his under-king under role uh, in about AD 39 because he just enjoyed as much as he could stand of his immorality. When Caligula thinks you're immoral, you're, pr- you're probably immoral. <laughs> you know? and, uh, so... So he knows that. You know, it's not like he doesn't think John the Baptist is wrong about this. It's just that he's got a resistance where he says, well, I just can't. I can't buy into it. Like, I can't 
I can't really stop and allow that this could be true and think about it very much because I've got too much to lose, really. So I just have to dismiss it out of hand. Um, I can't believe it. I mean, one thing I've got is a life that's working pretty well. I've risen to the top. I've got everything the way I want it. For me to submit myself to Jesus as the true King of Israel uh, will ruin pretty much everything that I've established professionally in my life. And who I am, my whole identity, uh, would be at stake if I were to admit that this were true. And then he's got the social cost. He's terrified of his wife, apparently. Um, and, uh, and then he's terrified of his guests, the leaders in his movement. You know, he's, he can't lose face. He'd rather uh, murder a prophet of God than lose face in front of these people. So he's got commitments in his life already, sort of uh, you know, behind-the-scenes beliefs that he's not willing to put up for grabs by really thinking through whether the faith is true or not. Right? He's got background beliefs. So he's not just an impartial observer saying, wow, tell me more about the evidence that you're being the Messiah. Right? Uh, wow, these are amazing miracles. What do they mean? Let me think about it open-mindedly and see if I think it's true and I'm willing to embrace it. No, he's like, yeah, no, I can't do that. Um, if I need to come up with a reason for it later, I will, but I just know I can't do that. I've got the, the behind-the-scenes beliefs going on. And so, um, in both cases, you have people who aren't just objective, reasonable, clear-eyed observers who are trying to draw good conclusions about what's true in the world. You have people who have emotional and personal reasons for what they believe and why they choose to believe it. Do you know anybody else who's like that in the world, who bases their beliefs on emotional and personal reasons, rather than just clear-eyed, empirical evaluation of the facts? That would be everybody, I believe. All of us base our fundamental conclusions in life on things more than just a clear-eyed, open view of the facts. Although not everybody buys that, prima facie, where we live, because unlike the people that Jesus was dealing with here, most of our friends who struggle to believe the Christian faith um, are more given to empiricism. Basically saying, I can only believe things that you can prove. Right? I only believe things that are apparent to me through the clear eyes of reason and through my sense data. And what I can know that way, I can know with certainty. But what is known in some other way, I can't really know. Um, and that's the idea that we believe. That people are secular because they're committed to reason. And people are religious because they are committed to faith. And have some emotional or personal need to believe things that aren't otherwise obvious and apparent. And yet we find, you probably have found in your own life, and find in your friends' lives, that a commitment to empirical reason requires as much of an unprovable assumption of faith as religious faith does. And so this whole idea of bias and uh, hidden beliefs that are sort of just operating in the operating system in our minds uh, is also true for people who have their hope in reason. Because you think, you know, the, the story is just this. I used to be religious. I was raised that way. But, you know, once I came to a clear-eyed and honest assessment of the world and looked at things you know, only on the basis of the facts, then I freed myself from all of the constraints of, of dogma and belief 
and superstition that had haunted my past. That's the idea. But empiricism has its own unprovable beliefs, too. Like, matter has always existed. How would you try to go about proving that? I don't know what kind of test you would devise. No one can prove that or has ever proved that, but that seems to be true in the provable clear life of reason. There is no God. How would you go about proving that? No one's ever come up with a way to prove that. No one can know that. So it's a faith assumption to say that there is no God. It's not reasonable. It's not reason that drives us to that conclusion. It's not empirical proof that drives us. It's not sense data and observation that drives us to that. Uh, It's faith. It is an emotional and personal bias and reason you have to believe something that you can't prove. Which is kind of how we all wind up believing what we believe. Human rights are important and human equality uh, is a, a treasured value. How would you prove human equality empirically? It's not something you can prove. It's an assumption. It's a faith belief. So I go into that just to say this, that almost all of us in our dealings with the faith uh, deal with not only reason, but we deal with personal bias and background beliefs and personal reasons we have to think the way that we do, Uh, which really makes understanding faith difficult. Some people have spoken about this very honestly, and if you'll just indulge me, because this kind of stuff interests me. But uh, Thomas Nagel, who's a philosophy professor at NYU, uh, said this as an atheist and an empiricist. He says, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And then in his next paragraph, he he refers to this as his cosmic authority problem, which is a very uh, good phrase. My cosmic authority problem. In other words, I don't want to have to answer to an authority beyond myself. And uh, he says this, it's, It's just as irrational to be influenced in one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as it is by the hope that God does exist. Because they're both irrational hopes uh, in the sense of empirical proof, which is very honest and insightful. Aldous Huxley said something equally candid. um, And I appreciate these guys because they're examining their background beliefs. They're dragging them out and looking at them and saying, look, I'm not just going to assume these things. Let's talk about it. Let's see if they're really real or true. Huxley, also a notorious atheist, he said, I have motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. And consequently, I assume that it had none. And I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The assumption first, and then I'll find some satisfying reasons to back it up. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially a liberation from a certain system of morality. 
We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. That's somebody dragging the uh, background beliefs out into the open and looking at them and thinking about them and not pretending that a belief in empiricism or atheism uh, has solid, provable foundations that religious faith doesn't have. So what I want to urge you to do uh, is to drag your background beliefs out and look at them squarely as well. Um, what is it that makes faith in Jesus Christ seem implausible to you? If you're already a Christian, what is it that makes obedience to Jesus and submission to Jesus seem frightening to you? Why do you think you'd be a better king in your life than he is? Uh, because that's, there's something there that causes you to say, I would like to at least preserve a few areas of my life for myself that I don't really want to turn over uh, to Jesus because somehow I suspect that he won't do as well for me as I will do for myself. Um, what is it that makes that seem normal to you? Drag it out to try to think about it. Say, what is it that, why am I suspicious that he wouldn't be good to me? Why am I suspicious that he would be withholding towards me or would want me to be less happy in my life than I want me to be? You have to drag these things out if you're going to understand them. Um, because there's more going on in your life than just reason. There's bias. There are personal and emotional reasons that you have for believing what you believe. And reason, I'm not down on reason. One thing reason can do that's really helpful for us is it can help you evaluate what are these things I've assumed and believed and what is Jesus saying and which one holds more water? Like you can compare with reason and say, you know, is the Christian faith cons internally consistent? You know, does it, does it make sense in what it says? And do my beliefs about science, or do my beliefs about pleasure, or whatever uh, my background beliefs are, do those, are those things consistent? Uh, are they true? Right? Reason can help you think that through. Uh, am I able to live in light of what I said I believe? Do I have to borrow things from some other tradition uh, to prop up my system. You can ask questions like these and help you examine your background beliefs and could be a real help to you as you try to really come to a conclusion about what's true in the world and what's true about God. You know, you have to ask your system, basically, what does my system uh, give me to handle the question of meaning in my life? Uh, how does it equip me to handle suffering in my life? What does it do in terms of me trying to have an identity and understand who I really am? Uh, how, how does it do that for me? Uh, is, is my scheme likely to result in my happiness, even? You can ask these questions, but asking the questions is rare these days. It's unusual for people to ask the questions. We usually just rely on the background beliefs that float in our heads unexamined and uh, add a little reason here and there just to prop it up so we don't have to think about it anymore. You know, so I'm always just trying to bait people into conversations, which is probably rude, but it's a habit that I'm not going to break, probably. But it's very hard to get people to talk about what they believe. You know? um, people have a deep reticence to, to talk about the important things about what they believe, because most of us think, I really don't want to drag my background beliefs out into the open and have to, have to defend them, because I'm not real sure they're great. You know? And uh, so... If you can find a way to be nicer than me uh, and yet 
have good conversations that help people do this without feeling threatened by you being obnoxious and whatnot, then that would be a great gift to your friends. Um, because, just like there's a resistance to the faith that sort of lurks in the background unexamined, there's a resistance to talking about it that lurks in the background unexamined. Uh, the disciples, and Mark sandwiches it this way. Here's a bunch of people in Nazareth who totally reject Jesus. Here's Herod, who totally rejects Jesus and his, and his messengers. In between that, go out and tell people about Jesus. <laughs> That's your job now. Right? You're going you're to extend my mission in the world. It's weird. Like, if you've read through the Gospels, you know they don't know much at all about what's going on. And he sends them out to preach. It'd be amazing to hear what their sermons were. I can't imagine they were any good. You know, like, what did they say? Like, the only message it says they preached was, repent. And everybody loves that message, right? <laughs> you're wrong, and you need to change the way you think and the way you're acting. I mean, Herod loved that message very much, didn't he? Herodias loved it. Uh, they went out and they did. But what Christians have done since, you go out and you talk, you talk about God's grace and you do deeds of mercy. And that's what they did on their deputation when they, they go out two by two. Uh, probably overwhelmed because Jesus set the mission up to be foolish. You know, they don't prepare well at all for your trip. Go stay for whatever reason, the first place you go to, you know, as if like first place you go to in a town is going to be the best place to stay. But that's one of the rules. Don't take any money. So you're going to go, you're going to be trying to tell people about this Messiah who's come. But then... You're begging for food. <laughs> it's, it's this foolish-seeming mission that he sends them on. And, and right after they've seen, a lot of people aren't going to buy it anyway. Even if it's Jesus preaching, a lot of people aren't going to buy the message. Um, it's an old Bill Malley song that says, I heard John the Baptist preaching, make way for the king, but if you want to recognize him, you've got to tell me all your sins. And that's kind of what they went out to say. <laughs> make way for the king, but... You've got to repent of your sins to prepare for them if you want to recognize them. So, it's pretty much our calling, though, as the church now. You know, we went from being a mission church a couple of weeks ago to being a particular church, which means we don't have to do the mission anymore, right? <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that. It just means um, we're supposed to be more organized trying to pursue the mission now. Although, what they said in the service was that now our church is self-governing. But I've never felt less self-governed than I do now that we have elders and deacons. I don't know what that is. But the mission part stays. right? We're still on mission. And that is that we're to go out with the deeds of mercy and with words of grace to spread Jesus' mission in our community. Is that your favorite, favorite part of the Christian faith? It's the idea of uh, imposing your beliefs on others. <laughs> Proselytizing. <laughs> That's everybody's favorite. I'm not talking... I mean, the disciples had to go and kind of talk to strangers. Like, just interrupt and impose themselves on strangers. We don't have to do that hardly at all. Um, what we are called to do, though, is in our friendships, is to not hide who we are. Right? To be willing to talk to people about what matters to us and how we make decisions and what we treasure. 
And, you know, we don't have to have a much more sophisticated message than these folks had when they went out. All they're basically doing was saying, uh, Jesus, <laughs> look at him, Jesus, you need to look at him. And that's pretty much all we're doing, too. But it's weird if you're friends with somebody and the thing that you love and treasure the most in your life is Jesus Christ. And they don't even know that about you. Um, it, it, it feels oddly withholding. And if Christians are just somewhat transparent about who they really are and don't hide that, then the conversations have a chance to arise. Um, and the message goes forward. In the early church, they really couldn't preach publicly because of opposition and things. It's hard to figure out how did the, how did the Christian message spread. And it seems like mostly it was Christians in their friendships that people saw the joy that people had in connection to Jesus and we're willing to talk about it and consider it. And our time more and more seems to be like the time of the early church that way. It's what we're called to do and able to do. There's a lot of resistance that we have to that, though. We don't want to because we're... We know there's social cost if you talk about Jesus. I mean, a lot of what you worry about is that people treat you badly if you act weird. And you don't have to act that weird to talk about Jesus. Right? But... Um, but there's cost. It might, it might cost you friends. Um, it might just create distance between you and people whose approval you really want. It could, it could mess with you professionally, I guess. It did in the early church a lot. We don't have that much opposition now, but um, you know, there are costs that come that make us timid about talking about what matters to us with our friends. And you kind of need to drag those costs out and say, is that, is that something I really can't lose? Is that a cost I really can't pay? And think about that. Also, I think people don't talk about it much because they're pessimistic and they think, ah, that person's never going to become a Christian. You know, I just can't imagine them becoming a Christian. As if, like, you were some likely person to become a Christian. <laughs> you know? I mean, what we're told in the Bible is it's a miracle any of us is a Christian. Every one of us is the least likely Christian we know. So, you think about that very much, it's hard, hard to be that pessimistic about somebody else becoming a Christian. Um, the big thing that overcomes the resistance, though, to talking about uh, what Jesus means to us, just having conversations about it, is a lack of any vibrant joy that comes from our experience of a relationship with Jesus. John Stott, a terrifying line, he said, uh, nothing shuts us up, that's a paraphrase, like the secret poverty of our spiritual experience. The secret poverty of our spiritual experience. Um, that matters a lot more than whether you know all of the theistic proofs and can drag them out ready reference in a conversation, or whether you can prove that empiricism is a faith just like religion is, or whatever else. Uh, the reality of your connection with Jesus and the existential vibrancy of that in your life uh, is probably the main issue in your life with regard to talking about your faith. Because you know? if you're experiencing the approval of Jesus day to day, then risking the approval of other people isn't so risky. Right? And if you're amazed at His mercy in your life, and the miracle that you're a Christian and have received grace, then it makes you a little more hopeful for other people that you might otherwise not be so hopeful for. So it's your 
own vital experience with Jesus that matters most in that. And uh, if that hits you like it hits me, and you need to uh, try to dig into that a little more, it might help you to grab a friend and talk to them about it to say, look, this I want to pursue reality in my life with God a little bit more. Uh, could you help me? Could you walk with me through that? I'd be willing to do that with you if you can't find somebody better. So, so faith isn't easy to talk about it or to believe. Uh, fraught with all sorts of little uh, nuanced sub-beliefs in our head that we can't always ferret out. And what I hope for you and for myself is that we can get to the place that uh, the soldier in Mark 9, a few chapters ahead of us, got to when he saw Jesus. He asked Jesus to come heal his son, and Jesus said he would as long as the fellow believed. And uh, the man said what I would probably say, which is, ah! <laughs> as long as you believe, ah! Um, and he says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And uh, from what I've observed, that's, uh, that's the kind of help that Jesus is pretty willing to give if you ask him for it. I believe, help my unbelief. Now let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and for my friends here. You know the different struggles we have with our faith and doubts. You know the friends that we love and the struggles that they have. And we would love uh, to be locked in in a vibrant connection to you. And we'd love uh, to see you at work bringing our friends to faith in you, for them to experience the mercy we've experienced. And all that feels hard to us. And we pray you'd help us uh, connect us to you, open doors. Uh, of mercy for our friends. We ask this in Jesus' name.